How is the process of digitization changing the world? From discussions about intimacy to the surveillance of publics, we will bring you ideas and speakers that question how digital elements are transforming our everyday lives. Welcome to the Global Digital Cultures Podcast. Welcome back to the Global Digital Cultures podcast, where we bring the global and the cultural in conversation with the digital. My name is Rivka Jaffe. I'm a professor of urban geography at the University of Amsterdam. I'm here today with my colleague Thomas Poole and our guest for today, Justus Altermark. Yes, I'm Thomas Poole. I'm professor of data, uh, culture and institutions uh, at the Department of Media Studies. And today we have as our guest uh, Justus Eitemark, who is Professor of Urban Geography at the Faculty of Social and Behavioral Sciences of the University of Amsterdam. He studies cities from a comparative and historical perspective, looking at how power relations are expressed in the built environment, which groups and interests prevail and which are pushed into the background. He is a principal investigator of two major research projects, First, an MBO VD project titled Between Collectivization and Enclosure, Self-Organization and State Formation in Rapidly Growing Cities. And second, an Horizon 2020 project uh, titled Oh, This House, Examining Cultural and Political Conflicts. So we're very happy you're here, Justus. Thank you. And happy to be here. Um, we would like to start with a question uh, which is somewhat personal. Um, so we would like to uh, ask you to tell a bit about yourself. Um, where did you grow up? Where did you study? Uh, and where have you worked before? And especially we're interested in what you learned from the different places where you studied and worked. So you don't have to go in, in extreme detail about every step in your life, but maybe the highlights in terms of your intellectual development. Or, or the lowlights, if, if they're there. Or the low points. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was born and raised in Amsterdam. I studied uh, human geography and planning at the University of Amsterdam. Then I went on to do a PhD and I had decided that I wanted to not do that PhD in geography. I wanted to move to sociology. I can tell you a bit more about reasons uh, later, but I didn't immediately find a suitable position. So then I moved uh, to Nijmegen University for a year. Mm. Uh, I was still at human geography at that point. And then I got my PhD position in sociology at the University of Amsterdam at the uh, AISSR, the Amsterdam School for Social Sciences. Then I um, moved to Rotterdam and first I was an assistant professor there and then I became a, a professor of community development, still at the sociology uh, department. There I learned quite a bit, and, but I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Then I'll, I returned to the University of Amsterdam as a sociologist. And then finally, I, uh, I returned to geography again at the University of Amsterdam. And like Rivka, I became a professor of urban geography. So we we nice. should add he's my direct colleague. <laughs> that really sounded like a hero, you know, Joseph Campbell's hero journey, where you, you, you leave the home, you go on a quest to Nijmegen, Rotterdam, and then you find like the treasure, the grill, you return home to urban geography, yeah. revitalized uh, by all your travels. An odyssey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I can also tell you about the reason for this. Like, and It was that as a geographer, I got very frustrated with the obligation to consider space in whatever we were studying. So 
there would be a question about discrimination, for instance, and I thought, oh, that's an interesting question. I want to understand this issue of discrimination better. And then people would say, yeah, space, space plays a role in discrimination. And I thought, yeah, sure. But why would we immediately jump to space? Why would we not consider the problem from different sort of angles? And why would we prioritize space instantly? So that is why I wanted to move to, to sociology, to be liberated of this obligation to consider <laughs> space. But then when I was in sociology, at some point I realized how valuable this spatial perspective really was. And when we were considering correlations in abstract statistical space, I was all the time thinking, well, actually these, these relations are embedded in particular contexts, which matter greatly, uh, which actually constitute these relationships. So uh, I, be I became a sort of born-again uh, geographer. And, uh, yeah, those, those have a reputation for being the most fanatic. I'm not sure if that's nice. And were there particular people uh, on that, in that journey you worked with that very much influenced your thinking, uh, that really had a big impact? I can think of two that instantly stand out. There were obviously there were many, Lots, yeah. but one is Bram de Swan. Uh, so he's a figurational sociologist in the tradition of Elias, but he clearly gave the the tradition his very own uh, character. And uh, I, I was incredibly impressed by reading his work, and it, it provided a sort of context for all sorts of small studies that I did. He provided, in my view vocabulary to understand what I wanted to understand and he also helped me to understand processes that I had already had an interest in like for instance state formation segregation these sorts of issues are very important the other thing I have to think about it's not so much uh, a person but more a phenomenon and that is that of grassroots organizing and I became interested in grassroots organizing uh, as a student so I, I had a strong interest in the squatting movement. Uh, I had a strong interest also in resident mobilizations. So I studied this and I also participated in this to some extent in Amsterdam, but also especially in Rotterdam. I was, I was very impressed by the history, uh, the tradition of community development there. Uh, so the social demo democratic tradition of trying to recreate neighborhoods from the bottom up by involving a diverse group of people. And I, I was amazed because it was very successful in, in contrast to what I had seen in Amsterdam. And, and I think this also had a lasting impact on me. Interesting. So, so do you consider yourself to be an activist or uh, activist scholar or mostly just a scholar? Yeah, it's, a, it's a difficult question. Um, when I was an activist I deliberately didn't write about this. Okay. Uh, I wanted to have a strict separation between science on the one hand and activism on the other. Now I know of course uh, how dubious it is to make that distinction but I, I, it, it worked for me and I wanted to have a very very clear uh, separation because I didn't want to be partial uh, and I, I've been often called upon by activists to say something as a scientist that would support their cause. Mm. And I've always refused because I felt like, yeah, but I know as a scholar that I might as well say the opposite. And mm. I could also substantiate it with, with academic literature. So for a long time, I kept these two things entirely separate. 
But now um, I've grown somewhat more distant to activist circles. I can also more easily say critical things because I'm, I'm far removed. And I think so. this is also a time for me to think more deeply about becoming more of an activist scholar. And I think mm. one of the reasons I wanted to move to urban geography, apart from the intellectual one, intellectual one I just mentioned, is that I want to have a stronger connection with the city. And, mm. and I want to help, help change it in particular ways through... Um, scholarly collaborations uh, by being involved in, in, in policy making and activism. Yeah. So I don't know, I maybe I'm somewhere on a, on a transition to becoming an activist scholar. Nice, good. Well, so, so the topics you mentioned now, they, they fit very neatly into sort of classic preoccupations of urban geographers and urban sociologists and social movements, contentious politics, urban change. Uh, but the reason we've invited you here is also because you've increasingly uh, engaged with digital affairs, digital methods, social media in the city. Um, and you, you've had various projects looking at different questions here, but I wanted to ask you also about the book that's about to come out, about um, or, or titled Instagram, The Self of the City, unless you've just changed the title. But could you tell us a little bit about this book? How did you end up writing it? Can I, can I say first how I got interested in, yeah, in digital yeah. affairs? Yeah, so be, because that originated from my interest in uh, activism and social movements and I, I remember I think it was around 2010 maybe a little bit earlier 2008 uh, WikiLeaks came into the news and 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 for me this was uh, this was a major event I saw how social movements had been struggling to uh, to, to address all sorts of injustices uh, perpetrated by corporations perpetrated by the state and here we had this very small organization that succeeded in capturing international headlines. So that was fascinating to me. And I, I also was fascinated by Julian Assange's theory about the role of leaking in bringing about justice. So this is, this is one reason I got interested in it. And another was the emergence of Anonymous. So just after WikiLeaks hit the news, Anonymous hit the news. And they, they, they hit the news when they successfully knocked out the servers of uh, MasterCard, uh, Visa, uh, a number of other financial organizations. And again, I, I was sort of amazed because I had studied movements trying to organize blockades, trying to organize large-scale protests. And all of a sudden, there was this group of, of anonymous people who succeeded in knocking these websites offline. So, so I was amazed by that. And of course, later I've been told by hackers, oh, that's nothing special. You should, you, 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 that's not impressive what they did. No, it was impressive. It, it was deeply impressive to me. So then I immersed myself in, into, into that world. First, I was sort of naive about it. I thought, ah, these are all like noble activists uh, fighting for the cause. Uh, over time, I became aware that this wasn't the case, that it was a rather ugly world in, in many ways. Uh, but I continued to be intrigued. And so that is the moment I started writing about uh, digital media, about mm. uh, social movements on the internet, on the web. Uh, and so from this, 
I also became interested in complexity sciences because I noticed that this played a huge role uh, in anonymous and uh, played a huge role also in academics trying to understand these types of movements. And from there, uh, I sort of slowly moved to Instagram. But there were a couple of steps in, be in between. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so you came from Twitter, you came from social movements, you stopped at Twitter, you ended up for the time being at Instagram. So, so what questions does this book seek to answer? The book? Mm -hmm. So uh, the book started, I think, with a, with, with, with a sort of very naive observation, uh, which was that Instagram wasn't so much used as a, as a vehicle for social movements and contestation. Now, for people who spend a lot of time on, on Instagram, uh, that's not really a surprise. But I didn't spend a lot of time on Instagram. I, I had no idea about uh, the platform and neither did my collaborator, John Boy. So we were interested in Instagram because it allowed us to collect uh, geotagged and geocoded data. And, and we thought, ah, this is a great opportunity. So we were in it for the data at first. And then we started analyzing this data as part of a project on cultural conflict. And so we tried to see cultural conflict. And sure, there was some cultural conflict, but we really had to search quite hard to find it. Instead, we found people showing off their sneakers. We found people celebrating birthdays. We, saw, we, we found many, many, many close-ups of coffee cups and avocado shakes. And so we became interested in what these people were doing on Instagram. Uh, if, it, if, if it isn't used as a vehicle for social movements and contestation, as people like uh, Manuel Castells led us to believe, how was it used and what kind of space was it? And so our, our book basically documents the research we did over a number of years trying to answer this question, trying to answer the question, what sort of social media is Instagram? And how, we, how can we reconsider Instagram? Uh, how can we reconsider social media from the perspective of Instagram? Can I, can I ask a media follow-up question on that? So, um, well, obviously you came with particular sort of expectations uh, or research questions to Instagram and then found something else. Um, to what extent do you feel that uh, the, the uh, interpretation of other or the, the analysis of other types of social media like Twitter or Facebook or YouTube for that matter uh, have been very much framed uh, according to, you know, maybe long... Uh, research traditions which have been in place uh, but maybe uh, researchers haven't sufficiently in your words let the data speak for themselves uh, and maybe they're open to other types of interpretations do you have that impression and what other types of interpretation would you then develop on the uh, along similar lines about these major platforms yeah I agree uh, I, I think many academics especially the academics that that I worked with tend to equate social media with Twitter. Uh, it's academics' favorite platform by far. They spend a, a lot of time there. Uh, and not only do they spend a lot of time there, Twitter also confirms to their idea of what social media are or should be, mm. like a, a place where you exchange arguments and sometimes uh, heated arguments. But it's a, it's a space that revolves around interaction, arguing, and so on. And so... Uh, it conforms somewhat to the idea of Habermas' public sphere. Mm. 
it's sort of an extension of the traditional media. It's a place where people form and exchange opinions. Now, if you view social media uh, in this way, then I think there's a mismatch with, with Instagram. I, I don't think that you can adequately uh, conceptualize it or understand it as a space where people exchange opinions. So this led us then to, to think, okay, but what, what is happening there? What, what is the logic of this medium? And so this led us to, to consider work uh, by, by many digital scholars. Uh, for instance, uh, Alice Marwick, who, mm. who wrote about the importance of, of status. Uh, and I, I think this is, this is a very interesting line of argument. And also it led us to uh, reconsider some of sociologists, uh, sociology's classic, classics, especially uh, Elias' writings on the court society. So, so some of the stuff he was writing about the court seemed, so, seemed to resonate so clearly when we, when we were looking at Instagram. And, and so this then... Uh, let us in, in that, that sort of direction, uh, away from the idea of social media as a public sphere. Yeah, and have you thought about along similar lines about these other major platforms? I can see the argument about Instagram, and I can see your argument about uh, Twitter. Um, maybe this goes beyond your comfort zone, but have you thought about YouTube or Facebook along these lines? Or, or, and how or, would or you WeChat or Weibo? Or... Weibo, indeed. <laughs> Well, I thought about them, but uh, only casually. Yeah. In my in my spare time. Uh, th this is this is a place to freely associate. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know what I what I I have to think here, and and, and sorry if this seems like uh, like a detour, but I'm I'm partly thinking about comparative uh, work in geography that tells you like. You, you can theorize from any sort of particular environment. There's not a privileged location for theorizing. So uh, Jennifer Robinson made, makes this argument that you, you can theorize from, from any type of city. And I, I would say the same is true, true for social media. So um, if, if, you're, if you're strongly invested in a particular medium you understand it very well hmm. then i think you can use that medium that specific medium to theorize about general qualities of social media so i tend to think of these specific platforms as having uh, qualities that you can find in other platforms but they may be a little bit more salient so take the status dimension that is obviously uh, extremely important on, on instagram but arguably also on other platforms yeah, yeah. And then if you would take um, a, another platform, like for instance, a TikTok, uh, which is more, uh, I suppose, about humor, about goofing around, also ab about choreography, mm -hmm. then I think that these, these are qualities that are not unique to TikTok, but um, you can see them there in, in a very clear way. And, and yeah. so in that sense, you can use that social media platform to theorize about these broader uh, qualities of social media. Nice. Can I, can I uh, latch on to something you just said? So you mentioned this this concept of the court that you take from sociologist Norbert Elias. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean when you use that concept to understand Instagram? How does how does that work, or what what is this court? Yeah. So what I find interesting uh, about about this court is that it preceded the public sphere, and in, in many ways. The public sphere is what the court is not. So 
in the court there is no strong division between public and private so the when when, when the king got up in the morning he was already surrounded by servants who would observe every move and so there was no distinction between uh, public and, and private also it was very much about uh, decorous status displays so people were all the time thinking and strategizing about how they should look how they how they should appear and generally speaking uh, their appearance would be in conformity with their position so it would be a little bit outrageous if you would suddenly dress as the king if you were only a prince nevertheless there's always scope for maneuvering for strategizing so people would constantly be gossiping viewing each other seeing every move strategizing in order to move ahead in this hierarchy now if i then think about uh, instagram users then they have the same sort of almost uh, they, they they also engage in, in predation all the time trying to see whether expressions on instagram are authentic or not gossiping about them positively or negatively so i think that if if you look at elias's writings on the court and actually also habermas's writings on the court you see that they highlight many sort of dynamics that you can also see on on instagram so i i really like this uh, this use of the metaphor of the court and you're building on the work of elias and obviously has a lot to do with your uh, training as a sociologist and being influenced by by bram de Zwaan's, uh, work Um, and I've, I've, reading your work, uh, I've been struck by uh, your referencing classical sociologists more, more often, right? So that's something you tend to do, and that's not very common in sort of social media studies or platform studies. So I was wondering uh, whether you do so purposefully, uh, really trying to draw on these uh, classics, uh, and also whether you think that platform studies more generally is should maybe try to draw from a wider sort of theoretical um, apparatus or a wider set of theoretical traditions in developing their research? I think it's an interesting question. I, I don't, I'm not doing it very deliberately referencing these uh, classic sociologists and specifically Elias. I also noticed that uh, it doesn't do me any favors very often. Like, like people are very critical uh, of, of using Elias and, and they would say, why don't you use more recent literature or why, or why do you use uh, literature written by uh, that white guys? The, the question uh, did pop into my mind. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's not, not out of strategy, I think. Um, it's just that I find it uh, productive to think, to think with these texts. And I think maybe a more uh, profound reason is that I want to relativize the newness of mm. it all. Mm. So grounding your work uh, in the classics gives you a way of highlighting that, that continuity of, of behavior. It's not that with social media, uh, humans' uh, sociality has changed altogether. I mean, it, it, it finds new ways, new infrastructures and so on. But there are some dynamics that I think recur throughout. So in, in that way, it, it does help me. Uh, that being said, I, I, I absolutely don't think that media studies should follow that example. Like one of my major frustrations with sociology is that they all the time 
hark back to mm. Marx, Durkheim, Weber, and I think it's healthy that disciplines have uh, different ways of uh, developing a canon, different ways of dealing uh, with classics. And I also think that maybe compared to uh, to media studies, I go back to the classics a lot. But obviously, uh, in the book and in our other work, we also credit more contemporary sure, uh, scholars. Do. I know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks. So if, if, if I can press you on that point a little bit, then. Um, so, so uh, Habermas's idea of the public sphere has been critiqued for for being very much based on European cities or specific cities within Europe. Um, so you, you try to say, okay, let's not look at Habermas. Let's let's look at you know uh, Elias in the court. But the court, uh, I think, as he's theorizing, is also very much a European tradition of of, of royalty or um, the court, um, and. If you're also interested in thinking beyond just Western Europe, do you th what what recent theorists do you draw on to say okay let's let's also bust out of that European tradition? So I I don't think that my reason for also drawing on other literature is is that I want to move away from Europe. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe in in my urban research that's mm -hmm. true, but not not in my my Instagram uh, research. So if I look at my Instagram research, I, I don't think that the problem with Habermas is that he's very uh, European. Um, I mean, he, he obviously is, mm -hmm. but I don't think that's the main problem. I think that just the idea of the public sphere doesn't work very well. When it comes to other theories, when it comes to platforms yeah, outside of Europe, I would have a hard time answering uh, that question. I mean, I could, I could mention names but they are not super important for my argument the, the one person i keep thinking about is Teresa sent uh she's not in europe mm -hmm. uh, and she wrote this piece called uh, uh fuck harvermas <laughs> uh, it's it's sort of she was she felt a little bit more strongly about it uh, than we did uh, and that I, I think that piece is very important in, in encouraging us to pursue this further and to really say like, oh, actually, this, this idea uh, of the public sphere underlies not just work that explicitly draws upon Habermas, but it's, it's, it also underlies a lot of other work that conceives of social media as uh, stages where arguments are, are exchanged. Yeah, and in the case of Zemf, I think it was very much inspired by her own research on webcamming, right? Webcamming communities. Yeah. In a similar way, also looking at a medium and then thinking about, well, does this actually connect with classical theory? And in this particular case, it really doesn't work. And so we should move on. So another question I would have. Uh, so in your work, you um, well clearly have the ambition, as, as sociologists uh, tend to have, is to move beyond media as isolated sort of instances and really think about them in long-term uh, processes of change, right? And uh, so you, you talk in your work about gentrification and segregation um, and you, you think about platforms as mediators in such processes. Can you explain how that works? So how is a platform a mediator in process of gentrification and segregation and so on? So one of the things that we could do when we had collected all this Instagram data as we could see how cities are mapped very unevenly through Instagram and so we came to try to see the city 
through Instagram. And, and when you do that, obviously you get a, a very uneven representation of, of the city. You see it in very particular ways, aesthetically pleasing ways, generally speaking. But you also see that certain places are, are highlighted, whereas other places are, are blotted out. And so this became uh, very much an interest uh, of mine, mm. in, in part because many places that, that I felt were very valuable were hardly present on Instagram, uh, whereas other places that I uh, had more, let's say, ambiguous feelings about were very much uh, mm. present mm. on Instagram. So this, this I thought, is interesting yeah. by itself. And uh, it, 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 it sort of... I have to think here also about what Sharon Sukin said, that the right to the city is not only about a right of occupation, like who can, who can live in the city, but it's also about imaginaries, like who do we conceive of as, uh, as citizens in, in the city. And then if you look at Instagram, then it's a very particular group of people, very particular types of places that you see there. So this is important in itself. But then I also think that it has an effect on how the city is organized because Instagram serves as a, as a sort of uh, marketing agency uh, for, for many, many different uh, places. So the people going there, the people displaying their consumption come to serve as a, a sort of uh, volunteer marketers for that place, attracting more customers and in that sense uh, accelerating processes of, of gentrification and displacement. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Can, can I ask about because uh, uh, we we got to read some of the chapters of your uh, still to be published book uh, and I was really intrigued. I, I could really see how these processes work for Amsterdam, but I wondered, um, is this also the case for cities that are less heavily touristified, uh, that, that aren't so reliant on on tourism uh, as Amsterdam is? What what do you think? Yeah, uh, I think so because um, in our data we actually sampled out the tourists. Uh, sort of on, on, on the assumption that we wanted to know how people used Instagram in their daily lives, uh, not when they were on holidays. We know it's in, very important uh, mm -hmm. for those purposes. Many pictures on Instagram are holiday pictures, but we, we sampled uh, people who had posted at least one month apart. So these are people who either live in the city or frequently go to the city. Um, so our data are, are not so much about uh, tourists. So, so I would expect very similar uh, types of patterns in, in other cities as well. You mean branding? It's, it's a type of place branding, even if it's not geared towards the tourist market. Even, even if there are these larger product processes of, of commodifying space for a tourist uh, population. Yeah, yeah. No, it, 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 it is a form of place branding, and I think um, it is often not acknowledged as such because it is not done by by professional marketeers mm -hmm. who are uh, paid a fee to do so. Mm -hmm. Often, this also happens. So you have the influencers who are who are, who are mm -hmm. paid to to mm -hmm. produce certain posts, and, and that's important. But I think at least as important are uh, regular folks mm -hmm. who feel that if they're in a place, oh, I want to share this, this mm -hmm. with others. This is an experience that I'm, I'm proud of, that I feel good about, and I want others to see it, to witness it, to participate in it. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, this is, this is a form of place branding for sure. So it's instead of grassroots political mobilizations, you found grassroots marketing. 
Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And and I think that's a, that's a very important point. It may be a little trivial for people who know who know Instagram very well, but um, at least according to some people, a, a promise of uh, social media was that there would be more horizontal relationships. So this is Emmanuel Castell's conceptualization. It's incredibly important. It would be emancipatory. It would be a counter space uh, distinct from a space of corporations and, and, and the state. And so we see that. But I think it, it pales in comparison to, to what you just described as, as this voluntary uh, place branding. So we would like to move to a couple of questions about research methods, because a lot of your work has been uh, also very much about um, well, uh, methodological innovation. Yeah. So in recent research, you employ uh, natural language uh, processing um, and uh, machine learning to uh, analyze very large uh, sets of social media data. So can you explain how that works in social media uh, analysis? And I'm especially interested to hear uh, what you consider to be sort of opportunities for research in terms of using those techniques and what they reveal when which you wouldn't be able to see when uh, coding manually. Yeah, so first I need to set the record straight. I'm not actually using these, uh, these methods. So these are the people I work with. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they, they are computationally competent people uh, and, and they, they, they can use these methods. So um, when you're talking about the book on Instagram, it's, it's John Boy who has these yeah. programming skills required to collect this sort of data. Uh, when it comes to natural language processing, Peter Turnberg is currently developing these, these sorts of uh, approaches. So why do I think it is uh, interesting and rewarding to work uh, with these people is that it, it becomes possible to see patterns that you might think are there, but, but you can never be sure. So I could talk to you about mm. how places are represented. Uh, on Instagram and I could share my suspicion that some places are more prominent than others but these computational tools give us a way of, of mapping this in, in great detail. Um, also in other research that I did on, uh, on social movements I was working with uh, Sander van Hapere uh, and, and, and Walter Nichols and there we had very clear ideas about where social movements were flourishing and then the data came in and they had to sort of revise these ideas. Mm. And I think this, this, is, this is very important and it, it provides you with a way of um, verifying your, 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 your ideas. Now, one more thing I'd like to say about this is that there's a large number of scholars using these methods to identify sort of invariant uh, patterns, to, to identify structures that reoccur across a great many domains. And so they would say, well, here, here we have um, a, a, a network of neurons, here we have a, a network of air traffic, here we have a social media uh, network, and they're all sort of the same. They all follow a power law, for, for instance. But what I find interesting in these methods is to bring an interpretive dimension uh, to them. Uh, so this is also work that I've been doing with Petter and Anna Kurgenius. We don't just look at citation networks, but we also see how the meaning of certain terms 
change as they diffuse throughout the scientific community. Terms like uh, intersectionality or terms like the strength of weak ties, a hypothesis mm. uh, by Granovetter. So using these different methods in combination, I think, is, uh, is very, very exciting. And um, I'm not saying it's the path forward for social science in general, not at all. Uh, but it has been uh, rewarding for me at least. Yeah. You, you kind of answered my next question already because, uh, yeah, we, we see in your work this combination of interviews and new computational uh, measures, um, but also your, your use of collaboration. So do you feel, even if it's not a model for, for the social sciences, but do you feel that, um, or is it something that one person could do alone or, or is it in fact a type of research that requires some division of labor, some type of collaboration across methodological or disciplinary expertise? How, how, how do you see that in terms of yeah, collaboration versus maybe the solo uh, researcher? Yeah, it's something that I've been thinking about quite a bit, in part because I made a rather conscious decision uh, a couple of years ago to really focus on collaborative projects. I, at that point, I had ambitions to do my own project, so I started a, a project on, on hunger strikers, but I recognize like either I need to do one one or or the other and I'm really going to focus on uh, on this collaboration in part because of the conviction that if you combine strengths then you can really make uh, progress uh, in a way that wouldn't be possible alone and um, again it's not a model for social science I, I greatly uh, I very much admire work done by by individuals but I do see that, uh, at least in some sections of the social sciences, you really need this uh, collaboration, not just between many different people, but also with people representing different uh, disciplines. Because what I very often see is that you may have large groups of people working uh, together, but if they all share the same vision, then a certain myopia uh, occurs. And uh, in, in that sense, I, I believe in this model of, uh, people with, with complementary uh, strength having conversations about the data and perspectives. Nice. So a lot of your, your research is focused obviously on cities um, and uh, uh, very much so on Amsterdam. Um, uh, I was wondering, given that we are well, a global digital cultures initiative, how the global plays into your research. Can you, can you talk about that? And how do you look beyond Amsterdam and beyond sort of uh, things that that happen locally. Yeah, it's uh, the, w one of the funny things that's happening in the interviews is, uh, is that I, I I feel like more and more uh, parochial in a way. Like, I and it's true that I very much um, base my understanding of the world and the entire world uh, on my experiences uh, in in Amsterdam, and that's absolutely a weakness. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie about that. Uh, but I think it's also, in a way, a strength. And so the same argument I had about Instagram, that you can use it as a particular site to theorize about general phenomena, I think that also applies uh, to Amsterdam. And I think you have to be very uh, careful and assess from case to case to what degree uh, the knowledge that, that, that you generate actually can be generalized or is more uh, widely applicable. So I'm now thinking here also uh, about uh, the work of, of Crystal Abedin. So that, that's actually 
uh, one person who's also been very influential uh, for our own work, still trying to think about also a person not from the West, but I, I don't know if, if, if she would qualify. Uh, well, she works on Singapore, right? She works so on Singapore, yeah. yes. But I, I believe she's based in Australia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and she also works, I think, in uh, Denmark. Yeah. yeah. So uh, when, when I read her work, I, I also try to think about, like, yeah, to what extent does this conform to what we see in the Netherlands? And is influencer culture, for instance, is, is it very much... Uh, the same here. So I try to, in that sense, bring my work into conversation of work by others. Uh, but I don't think that I have the ambition to say something about global digital cultures. And in, in that sense, I also really shy away from this word global. Uh, mm. I, I find it rather intimidating, the, the idea that there is like a global culture, um, whether it's digital or, or anything else. Uh, I do think that you can say that certain uh, groups have particular types of cultures and, and these groups are based in places around the world. But I would hesitate to call them global. Can you can I press you a little bit on this? Well, so uh, uh, can I just insert yeah. a, the, the, it's cultures in the plural. Now, now personally, I, I don't always uh, like the term culture as, as uh, either singular or, or in the plural, but... Uh, it, the, the idea of the research priority area is not that there is one global digital culture. No. It's, it's to think digital cultures across different sites. Exactly. Exactly. I didn't mean to <laughs> criticize your entire interview, but just to share some of my own uh, trepidation, yeah. <laughs> if you like. Yeah. And uh, that trepidation isn't about the word cultures. Mm -hmm. It's about the word global. Yeah. Uh, the, the, this, the, this is this is a word uh, that I uh, I think I rarely use, and um, I also think like, I associated with a, a period period of theorizing late 1990s, early 2000s about globalization and the, and the coming of like a, a world society. And um, I, I value that work, and I, I teach it, and I appreciate it. It's just not something that I see myself uh, doing. Uh, more maybe for reasons of personal dispositions, than that I can give like a coherent argument. Uh, yeah, but maybe just to continue on that sort of thought, and I agree very much with your critique on that earlier work on on the global. But obviously, the global also plays a very important role in terms of imaginaries. And so if you think about all of the platforms you're studying, they often portray themselves as, as, as global, as global communities, while also pretending to be local yeah. at the same time, right? Very much local. Um, well, uh, Airbnb, for example, is a, is a, is a, does that very strongly. So I was wondering uh, about these platforms and their claims to sort of, well, bring together global communities, mm -hmm. as well as obviously their, their operations uh, are to some extent really global right? as, as companies they work across the globe yeah um, so to what extent do you feel they have also a, a homogenizing effect on where they where they are being taken up and and used um, especially when you think about your own work in comparison to a crystal evidence work for example do you see uh, um, correspondences or clear differences uh, and also how do you how do you then relate to that notion of the global as something that's in an imaginary which is very very powerful yeah. Or, or, yeah. or maybe if I could also connect it back to uh, 
your, your analysis with John Boy of how Instagram works, not necessarily as pushing people into polarized bubbles, but in fact, you, you both argue that it has this uh, integrative effect that it actually uh, enhances or encourages conformity. Now, you argue this on the basis of, of, of the city, looking primarily at Amsterdam, but Instagram users aren't sort of, uh, sealed off of their cities. They're, they're also uh, yeah, part of a global Instagram user network. So I wonder, do you, do you also see this conformity, this integration happening at a, at a global level? So, so I guess that would be my, my sort of connection to, to Thomas's question. Do you in fact see this integrative, basically homogenizing, conformity enhancing mechanism at work in Instagram? And, and, and would there still be a hint of the global then in your, in your analyzing? Yeah. No, yeah, I think so. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I mean, we didn't study this in detail, but we, di we did look at uh, samples of Instagram posts from other cities. This was before Instagram uh, blocked access. And um, it, 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 it feels obvious, obvious uh, very familiar. I mean, if you, if you look at posts from other cities, and I think we looked at... Uh, Jerusalem, Copenhagen. I also looked quite a lot at posts uh, from from Accra, and you do see themes coming up again and again. And and also to relate to the argument about uh, evidence work, um, I don't specifically study influencers, but if I re read work on Dutch influencers and if I look at influence-like people in, in my own research, then yeah, uh, there, there are a lot of echoes. So I do believe that uh, there are platform vernaculars. I do believe that there are platform cultures. And also to answer uh, your question, Rivke, I do think that uh, Instagram in specifically is, is pushing people into certain directions. Uh, in the direction of conformity, in the direction of status displays. So I grant all that and uh, I, I see it. Uh, I, I also find myself, when I, as soon as I make this argument, I want to qualify. <laughs> because it pushes people in that direction, but some, some people won't be pushed and they have their own specific cultures. I'm, I'm also thinking here, about anthropological work on social media, like the Why We Post uh, project uh, by, by Miller, showing that there's such great variations uh, between countries. Mm -hmm. Also, just as an anecdote, I compared, uh, as a sort of little hobby experiment, posts uh, for Nor Norway's national holiday, as I think I call it Flag Day, and uh, Dutch posts on King's Day. And the differences were striking, like amazing. Mm. So in Norway, you would typically find multiple generations in one picture, which was a rarity in the case of uh, the Netherlands. And I found it so striking. So apparently people, what, what they share in common is that they, their displays of status also of pride they want to share this with others nationalism they, they're very aesthetic in one case they're orange in the other people have Norwegian flag and yet what they celebrate is also quite different like they celebrate uh, 
family and uh, intergenerational solidarity in one case and sort of individuality and friendship networks in, in the other. So although I acknowledge that, that you have this homogenizing uh, effect and that there are these media culture, I all the time find myself thinking, yeah, okay, but there's also import, important variation within that. But that fits very well with, with uh, I mean, we're not here to uh, convert you, you're already a born-again geographer, but I think how we understand global digital cultures is, is first of all, to, to think about the cultural dimensions and also to think about, you know, a, a narrow set of cases in, in Western Europe and North America. So our, our interest is precisely to look you know, at, at, at similarities, but really also at how cultural context, how political context and diversity shape, um, shape a variety of what seems or is often presented as sort of a monolithic structuring platform rather than an affordance that does have specific technical or, or uh, user biases or things it encourages or impedes but is never you know, deterministic. No, I think I think that's uh, that's fantastic and it's also something that I would like to do more but I, I simply can't for, for lack of uh, capacity, time-wise, maybe also in, the, in terms oh, that's of. That's right. You also, you don't. We're not here to. We're, we're, our intention is not to critique, but but to, no. to probe and to figure out why and how how you do your exactly. research. No, uh, but the question you asked earlier, like, would you see the same pattern in cities without uh, tourists? I, I would be very interested in studying more systematically also these Instagram networks in places like uh, like Akka or Istanbul, places that I have already studied for a longer time. And so now I do this rather casually, just browsing through posts. And, and, and I, I do get excited about it. But I also know that if you want to study this in the level of detail that I would want to, and if you really want to have uh, the context play a very large role, uh, then, then you really need time. You need to, to in, in invest in that. So at this po point, it's more uh, curiosity than that I can actually... Uh, carry out this research agenda. Yeah. So one thing um, we haven't talked about is the national so much. Um, and in your recent work, uh, I noticed on uh, immigrant rights movements and uh, the proliferation of anti-immigration discourse, you uh, stress the importance of the national. Can you explain why the national is so important uh, in this particular context? Uh, and um, how, how you would position that in relation to the uh, other research you've done so far. Yeah, so you're referring to work that I did with uh, Walter Nicholson, yes, exactly, son of exactly. Van Hapen. Yeah. And um, Walter and I have been working on immigrant rights mobilizations for a very long time, mostly in a local context. So this is mm. also where my interest naturally goes. I mean, again, yeah. It's not that I want to say that this is where everybody needs to look and it's all too important. It's just that I'm inclined to do that. Yeah. But then what you occasionally find is that these people in these local places, they join forces with others and they scale up their protests. Mm. And this is a very interesting moment, of course, because a lot of uh, immigration policy is decided not at the level of municipalities, but at the national level or at the European level so this process of scaling up is one that we're very very interested in and um, social media potentially plays a very important role there uh, because it allows activists to establish connections across different sites 
and uh, in particular one campaign uh, that that we studied not one more not one more uh, deportation was meant to give people a number of slogans and a motto not one more uh, but to have them carry out their own uh, protests on, on their own initiative so th this is something that we were very interested uh, in to see if that would indeed work the way they anticipated what the effects would be we didn't know when we started studying and then we found out over time that yes indeed uh, this became part of a, of, a, of a push at the national level to change uh, immigration policy yeah clear can I ask, so uh, we, we've talked scale here, we've talked the global, the national, the urban, um, but you you do engage a lot, I think, with these issues of, of scale, of spatiality, as as well as uh, the social. So maybe this reflects your, your hybrid sociologist, geographer, identity. Uh, but we're also, we're, we're interested in the cultural. Um, and, and you say in your book, you say, like, I'm not going to talk about platform culture. So that's not what we're here to do. But at the same time, you... You talk, uh, or you use terms that to us are really cultural. Uh, so you talk about scripts, vis visual, and the sort of narrative scripts that Instagram users uh, utilize. Uh, you talk about cultural conflict. You say that's not really what's at work in Instagram, if I understand you correctly. Though, though from a more cultural analysis or, or maybe anthropological perspective, I think all these status displays are totally cultural conflict. So, so we're, we were both just wondering, how, how do you engage with this idea of? of the cultural, the cultural dimension of social media use or the cultural dimension of the relationship between social media and the city and the self. Where, where do you see that coming in? Oh, you talk about aesthetics too? How can you say it's aesthetics but it's not cultural? So we're just wondering yeah. how, how do you, or do you just bracket that out and say like, I'm already covering so many disciplines and methods, that's for other people. No, no, I, I want to set the record here. I have nothing <laughs> against talking about culture. Absolutely not. No, it was the global that I took issue with. Yeah. The, uh, uh, and, and I should also add, like once again, not taking issue with it in the sense that I say, oh, that's wrong or people shouldn't do it. It's just I find myself slightly intimidated by this word uh, global. It's culture, mm -hmm. less so. So I'm, 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 happy, I'm happy to answer the question. Uh, and, and there were a couple, but let me pick, out, pick one that I, I, I found interesting. So that's about cultural conflict. So we went looking for cultural conflict in the sort of conventional sense of the word with people having arguments with each other and saying you're wrong and I want to see this changed and so on so we, we didn't find a whole lot of that that changed by the way so Instagram also what you find on Instagram changed but uh, also at the time we found of course a lot of cultural conflict but it was working in slightly different ways than we anticipated it was about very slight changes in, for instance, uh, dress or attire or, or appearance. Um, so this is, this is something that we became very much interested in. And if you look at uh, the courts to, to go full circle, it's not that conflict was absent. No, it was, it was everywhere. It just takes on a very particular type of form, not the form of, of people having rational exchanges of arguments, but people slightly changing their appearance, their attire, strategizing, maneuvering, and so on. Okay, so it's, it's really, it's, it's conflict through the cultural, conflict through aesthetics, and sometimes over aesthetics, rather than saying it's, uh, or, or 
How would you distinguish that from what you were initially looking for? So what you initially termed cultural conflict, how would you separate that from what you, you ended up looking at? Well, I, I can give two examples. So one, one is about uh, a small project that we did uh, with Laila Wiersma and, and John Boy. It was uh, about hijab fashionistas. And um, we stumbled upon, upon the hijab fashionistas because as we were browsing all these different posts, there was one woman with a protest sign. So I, I felt like, ah, bingo, finally, <laughs> finally we have conflict. Uh, and it was a woman's, and, and then I found out she had, what was it, 900,000 followers. It's like, mm. whoa, this is interesting. And so that opened up a whole world to me, the world of hijab uh, fashionistas. But they weren't all politicized in the same way as this particular woman who was standing on Dam Square with the sign in support of the Palestinians. But they were engaging in all sorts of other politics. So, for instance, how they how they would dress, whether they would wear uh, makeup or how they would wear makeup, that was part of uh, profound cultural changes that also resulted in, in uh, conflicts within the family, within friendship groups. So this was topic of, of much reflection. So in that sense, um, there was cultural conflict or at least cultural change. The other thing I have to think about is that, so Instagram is a space where, where people all the time think like, is this genuine or are people just doing it for the likes? And this, this just defines Instagram as a space. So there's always this ambivalence, just as commodities have use value and uh, exchange value, Instagram posts are always intrinsically partly an authentic expression of the self and an expression of status put up for appraisal uh, by others. And this complicates also how conflict conventionally understood works. So we talk to people about, for instance, their feminist uh, or anti-racist commitments, and they had great difficulty expressing those commitments uh, because they felt like, yeah, if I speak out against racism, will it look like I'm just fishing for likes? If I don't speak out, will I be castigated for not doing so? And so here you see that Instagram is not a place that is devoid of politics or, or conflict, but it structures conflict and politics in a very particular way, a way that people often find very difficult uh, to deal with. And then one way of dealing with this is simply to go for the safe option and not talk about these things at all. Intriguing. So we have one final question, which we ask of all of our interviewees. Uh, could you, for our listeners, recommend one particular book or article you've been very much inspired by recently uh, on, these, uh, on these issues? So on speciality, uh, social media, uh, conflict and so on. It, it could also be a, a song or a movie or an Instagram site. Uh, it doesn't have to be only academic uh, knowledge production. And I suppose I have to answer right now. I don't get to think about this. Um, well, let me, let me then uh, go with, with the book that is, I think, most influential for uh, the, the book with, uh, with John, and that is Alice Marwick's uh, st status update. I'm afraid mm. it's not a super original suggestion. Mm. 
But uh, yeah, credit where credit is due. Uh, that is really a, a book that set us on, uh, on on a path and confirmed some of the hunches we had. So yeah. it's a, it's an engaging and, and uh, rewarding book. It's an excellent book. Thank you very much for this uh, conversation. Yeah, thank you for having me. Enjoy. It.